Hey there, Foster Care Nation. This is Jason with Foster Care, an unparalleled journey. Just wanted to reach out and remind you guys about the new website at fostercarenation.com. You'll still hear me mention in some of the intros and outros the old website address, jasonmpalmer.com. And if you go to that website, it will just redirect you to the new, uh, the new page. Amanda and I put a lot of time and work into this every week. It takes about four or five hours for us to find guests, schedule them, do an re- interview, edit the recording, get it uploaded, and do all the things around it that we need to get done so that people can find the episode. The best thing that you could possibly do to help us out is to share this episode or another one that you think your friends might like on your social media or with them directly. We also have opened a Patreon account. We're at patreon.com slash fostercarenation, all one word. If you'd like to join us and help and support us financially, that would be great. If not, the content's always going to be free. It's just a way to help us maybe cover the cost of some of the things that we're doing here. Also, anyone with a story to tell that's related to foster care or adoption, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. You can find us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. That's fostercareuj as an unparalleled journey at gmail.com. And as always... Foster Cow and Unpella Journey. With Jason and Amanda. Where our mission is to provide strength for the weakest among us. Here we like to talk about foster care and adoption. We tell stories about bio parents, foster parents and foster kids, adoptive parents and adoptive kids, caseworkers, and whoever else can inspire action and encourage understanding of the journey that we and so many others are on. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or any of the major platforms. You can also find us at jasonmpalmer.com. Want to engage with us on our Facebook group? Find the group or page at Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey or facebook.com slash 7 dad. That's a number 7 time dad. We are here today with a case manager from Florida. Her name is Libby. Libby is a 24-year-old lady who has been working for uh, the foster care system for a while, and I met her on a podcasting page. Uh, She also has a podcast out there. It's called Video Game with a B instead of a V. And if you guys want to look her up and check her out, it's all about video game stuff. If you're into old school like Zelda, I know they're talking about the uh, cartoon on there now that that's out and just having a good time. So um, they've got 10 or 11 episodes out. So go check her out and and uh, take a look. If or guess listen on a podcast, <laughs> take a listen and see what you think about it. Also, the podcast that I make is definitely for adults. <laughs> like, don't let your kids listen to it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Like, uh, there is um, explicit sexual content, and there is, uh, well, no, not explicit. That makes it sound, like, icky. It's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> we are here, though, today to talk about the game of life. And we are, obviously, always talking about foster care. So we are going to talk with Libby about her experience with the foster care system today. How are you doing today, Libby? I'm really well, thank you. Great. Um, I know that you don't have any kids right now, <laughs> of your own anyways. I imagine you probably have some kids that you deal with on a regular basis. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, how many kids do you, do you take care of on a regular basis? 
I want to say that the last time that I sat down and counted the amount of children on my caseload, it was 20 something, maybe like 25. Wow, that's a lot. That is a lot. Is now is that standard? Um, there are people definitely with more. Um, and there are people definitely with less. Um, I think right now they're trying to get us the goal is 17. I see. But um, it's just, it takes a little bit of time to get everybody down. And with Uh, a caseload like that, what do you manage with a caseload like that? Since a lot of us don't really know what your job entails. Yeah, uh, definitely. Oops, sorry. I just whacked myself in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, definitely you're doing home visits. Home visits in the state of Florida um, are mandated every 30 days. My agency, we do every 25 days so that we're never going over the state mandate. Um, those are unannounced, which means I just come to your house and I knock on the door and you have to let me in. <laughs> um, nobody likes that. <laughs> I imagine. But that's going to be difficult because Um, when people don't know you're coming, I I imagine you knock on some doors of empty houses quite a bit. Yeah, um, that's fine. Uh, Doesn't bother me. It bothers (laughs) me if I have to go, like, some places are like an hour away. If I go up there and they're not there, I get kind of irritated, but it's not their fault. (laughs) Oh, I Um, I bet, but that's got to add extra work to your day, a lot of extra drive time and stuff. That's, I imagine that's a challenge. Yeah, you plan them out and then um, you try and get a good idea of everybody's schedule. So like, I know, like, I can't go see this, this kid until after six because their foster mom does not get off of work until 530. So like, you just have to keep track of stuff like that. So you're doing home visits, you're doing court reports, case plan, judicial review, social study reports is a big one. Um uh, you keep track of when they go to a doctor, when they go to a dentist, uh, all their behavioral health stuff. Um, and then referrals is needed. So if they don't have clothes, you refer them to get clothes. If they like were doing well and weren't needing any behavioral health, but now they do, you refer them for that. Now, when you go to these home visits, do do they provide you guys with a state car in Florida or is that all personal? No, it is personal. It is me and my my tiny yellow car. So you're putting all the wear and tear on your vehicle. Yeah, we do get a mileage stipend. Okay. Uh, but I have heard about other states like providing a car. And I'm just like, that sounds so nice. Like, well, what's that like? Yeah, some states can, some, some do not. Like, where we're at, um, they share one car. Through all the workers. So the majority of the time, our workers are in their personal cars, too. Yes. The agency that I work for, there are three, uh, I want to say they're like Dodge minivans, like some sort of minivan. And they're big white minivans. Those are used for if you need to transport more than the amount of children can fit in your car. Um, I hate driving them. <laughs> I bet so, after driving a little yellow car, I bet a minivan's like a tank to you. Yeah. 
to me, it's too big. Um, and I drive a Prius. So like, to me, it like accelerates too fast and stuff like that. <laughs> So, um, I, I couldn't go anywhere in a Prius. We <laughs> wouldn't fit. I... <laughs> We'd have to hook a trailer up to fit the kids in. <laughs> yeah. So my, um, I do not use those if I can help it. Um, and then plus you don't get mileage stipend if you're using those. Like you don't get that money. So I would rather drive a kid to Miami, like in my own personal car, than take the van. Because that's that like twelve hundred dollars in my pocket. Oh wow! I want to go to yeah. Miami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it definitely sucks. <laughs> like we definitely hate doing it, but um, that's the little silver lining. Well, if you ever want to jump in the car and come to Missouri and take Amanda to Miami, I think she's okay with it. <laughs> I'll hop on board. <laughs> I think if it's out of state within a certain amount, they will fly you. Oh, bonus! <laughs> yeah. Um. I have never been flown anywhere. Um, <laughs> I probably never will be flown anywhere. It's very rare. Do you guys do many interest uh, interest or interstate adoptions? I'll get it out. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the ICPC system is, of course, nationwide. Um, usually, if somebody out of state is adopting the child, they come and get the child themselves. Um, and then even if they can't afford to fly down for whatever reason, we say, can we fly you down? And like, because it's just, it's cheaper, um, to fly them down and have them fly the child back up than it is to pay me, you know, to fly the child back up, sit in the airport, you know, right. But yes, um, I've sent children to Illinois. And that's it. Okay. <laughs> that's um, not far from us. <laughs> yeah, I sent them, I mean, back to live with their father. They weren't being adopted. Um, but yeah, Illinois, Alabama, I think, is our most common one. Okay. Yeah, we interviewed a couple recently from in, from Alabama. Actually, it was the dad and um, and his foster daughter as well. Oh, okay. So yeah, uh, uh, if you ever listen and hear the story about Zoe or Luke, um, okay. They're they're from from not too far from you guys, I guess. They're in Alabama. Um, so yeah, it's a it's an interesting uh, because you know when we've what we've always done has been in the county work or some neighboring surrounding counties, counties, but it's always been in the side of the state for sure. And you right. don't think about that 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 it's a uh, it's a nationwide system a lot of times. Yeah, um, it's <laughs> I I've. Both sent children away on the ICPC system and supervised children who have been sent here by another state. It is such a headache. (laughs) (laughs) As like as happy as you are to like have these kids like back with their parents up, it's just so frustrating because technically the only communication with this other case manager you're supposed to have is through that system, which can take weeks. Because your county sends it off to the state capital, the state capital sends it to the other one, and then it gets sent off to their county. And it's just like, I would way rather just text or email (laughs) like the other case manager. So that sounds like essentially kids can be left in limbo for a lot longer that way. Um, I mean, we'll have like 
we'll have like conference calls and stuff like that. But and like we'll start acting on things that we've decided. But like technically everything has to go through that system. But we all recognize that it is slow. Yeah, I mean that's that's a government for you though. I mean they don't yeah. just work in the most efficient manner possible. Um just yeah. just watch the news and <laughs> about how Congress works. <laughs> um it's yeah, they they set up a system that they think will work, but it's not always amazing. Yes. Um definitely. And then like I said with Alabama, that's actually I think the slowest state in terms of the ICPC system. Really? Yes, because they're um they're all still on paper, I believe is my understanding. Oh wow. So it's it's like a paper document that is getting put in the mail. Yeah, that definitely I would think that that would make your job a lot more challenging. It's it's just frustrating because I live maybe 15 minutes from the Alabama border. <laughs> so I'm like, just let me take him. It'd be quicker right. to drive the letter there is what you're saying. Right. Like, just let me handle it, please. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that one usually takes a good eight months. Illinois took four. Wow. I mean, I understand why they, why they have some of those protocols in place because, you know, we, we saw a, uh, a case recently where there was a caseworker who was, I think it was up in the Northeast somewhere who was doing some pretty horrible things with a, uh, with a bio mom. And, uh, yeah, I had seen that one. Yeah. And I, I was kind of blown away when I read it. And it was very so, shocking. And then it's was, horrifying. There was another case I just saw recently that had to do with a, um, I think it was a foster parent who was, who was engaged in some pretty immoral activities with a foster kid. And, so I understand why they have those safeguards in place. But right. It definitely slows down the, the system and makes it diff- difficult to get a child into permanency very quickly. Right. And, that's, and then really should every, be our goal. Every state does have their own laws for what is for what is and is not child abuse and what is and is not suitable for a child. So that's the point of the ICPC system is us acknowledging like, well, this it's your state, so it has to meet your laws. So that's why, like, a whole home study has to be done and stuff like that, um, just to make sure. And in fact, the sibling group that I sent to Illinois, their half brother, his ICPC was d- denied um, because while the living situation would have been suitable uh, per the state of Florida, it was unsuitable per the state of Illinois. So he's. Uh, chilling out down here, but he's he's gonna go back with his parents soon, anyways. Well, that's great. It's always good to see a kid who can get back into their home with a parent who's taking the time to get themselves in a position they can get their kids back. Yeah, it's that's one of my favorite parts of my job is being able to be like, here you go, <laughs> here, here he is. Yeah, I mean, because where reunification is always, and I don't know about Florida law, I know Missouri law says that reunification is always the primary goal. But yes. we also run concurrent paths with TPR yeah. as, as an another potential end as well because it's so rare that you see parents who have done something to get themselves in trouble, to get their kids taken out of, of their custody, 
and then turn around and get their life together in a way that, that they can take care of their kids again. Um, oh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the statistics in Florida are. Um, I would imagine that they're uh, not really very fun to look at. Um, <laughs> I, I feel as right. though, in my experience, the majority of cases end in permanent guardianship rather than adoption or um, reunification. But I think we are trying to move away from that. Permanent guardianship, I mean, is a good option for older children, but I, a two-year-old child needs more permanency than that, in my opinion. I would probably agree with that. I, I know from some of the bio parents that we've met and we've worked with, a lot of them just feel very helpless. Yes. Like once their kids are taken away, this is the end-all, be-all. And they feel like they just can't do anything to change their path. Yes. And that's part of what we want to do is is provide some support for biological parents to say, hey, you can do this. If you want it, you can do it. I've absolutely seen it done. I've seen people who, I mean, to me, like very visibly were alcoholics. Like I could see yellow in their eyes and like everything like that. I've seen them go from not being able to go without alcohol to being six months sober. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. Um, So I've, I've seen that it is absolutely doable, but I, I also understand the hopeless feeling. Um, Especially I I think having the right caseworker is really, really key. And having a good rapport, the caseworker and the parent. What can you as a caseworker do to really encourage that that um, behavior in a, in a bio parent? I just try and be as positive and supportive as possible. I'm not trying to be anybody's probation officer. If I wanted to be a probation officer, I would be one. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I'm not trying to catch you. Like, if I'm giving you a drug screen, um, it's my job, and it's the law. Um, So, I just try and be really supportive, really encouraging. If you've been clean for a long time and we have a positive UA, I want to know what's wrong, like, what you're feeling, how do we fix this, and... Like, if you text me and you say you got a job, I'm going to freak out. <laughs> like, um, I just try and keep the positive. I just try and keep the environment very positive. But at the same time, I try to be very truthful. Um, because not everybody can get their children back. But um, I just try and say, like, we're going to, you know, you and me, like, we're going to work really hard to get them back. And. If it can't happen, it can't happen. But I I think that I have the benefit of I typically am not the person who removed the child. I bet that probably plays a big key into it because when that when that removal happens, I, I emotions have to be very high and right. And I have done removals, and I <laughs> uh, hate doing them. Um, 
But ultimately, I mean, if a judge sits there, sits there and says, like, remove this child, like, I can't be like, no, because I don't want to. <laughs> you could try that, but I think it'd be interesting yeah, it to would see go what great. Um, <laughs> so I, I've done them. I've seen, and I mean, like, I still have, like, dreams about it, like, stress dreams, because I've never heard somebody scream like that in my life. It's, I mean, it's horrible. Nobody, I think there's a myth that like, oh, well, the people working for DCF or DHR or whatever it is you call it in your state, like, oh, they get a bonus if they remove your kids. They want to remove your kids. A, no, we don't. And B, no, no, we don't. We don't want to <laughs> well, put yeah. you through that. We don't want to put the child through that. Not to mention, I don't think the state, um, I don't think the state has extra money for bonuses. No, there's no such thing. <laughs> I've never known a, here it's called children's division. It used to be DFS, now it's children's division, but yeah, I, I haven't met any children's division workers in our area that enjoy that part of the job either. Actually one of our one of the first caseworkers we had that um <clears throat> that was our she was uh Lindsay was um our first caseworker, wasn't she? No, Val was. Was she okay. Uh, but well, she, Lindsay was short after. Yeah, she was she was one of our caseworkers. And she did eventually end up doing um, doing the job of the investigator position, mm-hmm. and she did that for a long time. And she has since moved counties, and now she is a uh, she's a um, resource worker. You know, she she's the one who goes out and finds potential foster parents and trains them. And oh, okay, recruiter. recruiter. That's what we yeah. call that. That might be what they call it too. I don't know. <laughs> Making up words, maybe. But but I know that I talked with her recently. I had a question to ask her, and I talked with her, and was asking her how she liked the new job, and she said it's the weirdest thing ever. People are nice to me now. I don't yeah. understand it when they're nice to me. <laughs> I think too. Just speaking as a caseworker, you don't expect foster parents to be like just so mean sometimes, <laughs> and you're like. I get that things are not going <laughs> spectacular, <laughs> but I'm literally just trying to do my job. Like, uh, you you always expect it to be parents who are going to be hostile towards you, but usually when you're doing home visits with a parent, they already have their child back, so they're, like, pretty thrilled. Yeah. So they're, like, they're so excited, they're letting you in, and they're, like... <laughs> You uh, know, checking how good I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. Like they're bragging, which I mean, that's totally cool. I'm all about it. <laughs> I I think that they have all the right to brag in the world. Um, but foster parents, sometimes it's just like, why are you here? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and, and you know coming why. from, from like, the foster parent <laughs> side of it, it can be frustrating sometimes. You know, I, I understand. I that, called her, yeah. her, um, one of our workers yeah, this earlier this week and at, with a couple questions, and she said, I'm going to try and get back to you by Friday on that. And she didn't get back to me by Friday. But you know what? I also happen to know, because we've been we've been working with, with Children's Division for a decade now, I know that what she has to get done this week is more than my couple simple little questions. Right. And I, we've done it long enough that I, I'm not upset with her. I'm not mad at her. Would it be awesome if she had the answer for me within 20 minutes? Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's not that important. Then she's taking care of more important things. And especially with new foster parents who don't understand what a worker's job really is. I think sometimes that's a challenge. Uh, we, we just, one of the other 
people that we've talked to, uh, she's a, a caseworker here in Missouri, and she posted recently a post about you know what her day entailed. And my goodness, I'm going to tell you, I work 14-hour days a lot of times. I don't get as much done in a day that she got done. There are some days I feel like I'm running around with like a chicken, like <laughs> with a chicken with its head cut off. Um, and then two, I've noticed that February is a spike in new cases for us because December is a spike in new intakes. And then Florida, DCF has 60 days to finish an investigation legally. But DCF itself has come down and said, no, we want you to finish it in 45. Wow. So around the beginning of February, everybody's going to case transfer because the investigations from over Christmas are all wrapping up. Big spike in investigations over Christmas. And there's a big spike in removals in January. And you see it again in the summer. Wow. Yeah. Um, um, or not in the summer. You see it again right back as school starts. I'm sorry. I see. Um, what made you want to work for Children's Division? Um, well, I I went to college and I tried to get into the School of Social Work at Florida State University. I was rejected. <laughs> My grades were not good enough. Um and so I got my bachelor's degree in human rights and I moved back home um, after graduating. And the first job I got was at uh, the state attorney's office, which was miserable and I hated it. <laughs> um, and so I, I got, um, how do I phrase this? It was requested that I put in a resignation. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. That's one way. Yeah. Um, and I had been volunteering as a guardian ad litem, or I know other states, they call them CASAs. Yes. So I had been doing that. Um, and I put in several investigations at DCF, both as in uh, a child protective investigator and an adult protective investigator. Um, those didn't work out. <laughs> um, and so basically I put in my application at the um, agency I worked for. They said, absolutely. But there's only one thing you have to quit being a guardian ad litem. And I was like, okay. I mean, because I, when you're a volunteer as a guardian ad litem, at least here, they'll only give you one case. I see. Um, and I would imagine that's a lot easier than 20-some-odd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's 20-something children. It's only like 15 cases. Um, oh, that's all you say. Say it like it's just, eh, yeah. it's only 15. But I just figured this way I could still do like what I wanted to do, which was advocate like for these kids and um, get paid for it, which was cool because I, I do have like bills <laughs> and rent. Um <laughs> and I could do more, which was what I wanted, was I wanted to do more. Is um, there a special reason that kind of drew you to want to help children? Um, I just like them. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have a reason. I feel like so many people, like, don't see children as people, basically. They see them as just, like, little screaming 
like, I don't know, gremlins or something, which <laughs> it definitely can feel that way sometimes. Some but days. Like, <laughs> I, I have a few gremlins that I won't feed after 9 p.m. Right. <laughs> and it, it definitely can feel that way sometimes, but like, I don't know. I just, it bothers me because I feel like people don't treat children with like the respect that they deserve. And I felt that way. I taught preschool when I was going through college and everybody would complain about like being in a two-year-old room, which I mean, absolutely it is hell on earth. (laughs) (laughs) But I was always like, I mean, if you just give them like, if you just take them seriously, they're cool. I was going to say, give me two-year-olds all day long. I am great with babies, toddlers. It's the teens that get me some days. (laughs) Those are the ones that I have the hardest time with now. I do have a hard time. Technically, you're supposed to have like a private conversation with any child that's older than 12 months. And I'm like, he's two. He (laughs) He doesn't have anything to say to me. (laughs) <laughs> he's too like he doesn't he, he wants doesn't to show have, you his car yeah i mean that's basically it is it's just me being like is that your car cool what color is it <laughs> oh red like dope <laughs> you know the thing is though is you know we interviewed a young lady who went through a uh a pretty traumatic ordeal in her own home and that was one of the the things that she said she was telling people what was going on in her house. She was telling people about the abuse she was enduring, and no one would believe her. Right. And so I, th- I understand why why they want you to have that conversation, even when a lot of times it ends up being about, you know, the new truck they're playing with. But right. th- there's unfortunately a lot of those stories out there where adults have a hard time believing kids when they say bad things are happening. Private conversation, too, when the child is pre-verbal, usually ends up meaning, like, I looked at them, like, I got a good, long look at them, and, like, um, for, it is, I don't know if it's just best practice or the state law, but it is our practice where I work that if you have, like, a case where a child was injured, and that was the reason for removal, every time... You go out and see that child. You make the um, child's caregiver undress the child, which, I mean, sounds like so creepy and weird. But usually you're just saying, like, change his diaper for me. And that way you see, like, the entire child and you're, like, evaluating for, you know, injuries. And that's your, quote, unquote, private conversation. Yeah, because abuse happens and it gets hidden. And that's a good way to find it. You know, we... We have one one of our sons who's, well, he's 19 now, but when he was younger, this kid was, he was a frequent flyer at the ER. He would, he knocked a tooth out, broke an ankle, broke his arm, and I think that was all within about six months of each other. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, yeah, and we kind of got used to when we went to the hospital, all the nurses would, like, take, make their, their rounds and come by and... Oh, hey, buddy, what's going on? You know, and asking questions. How did that happen? How did you hurt your foot? And I, you know, and we've been around for a minute. I understand what you're doing. You're just yeah. looking to see, you know, if, if it's a consistent story. And I get it. So I'm not mad at them. What they're doing needs to be done because, unfortunately, abuse is a real thing. You know, unfortunately, yes. kids get hurt. And especially young kids, 
They don't have the ability to always say it. And it's our job as either foster parents, as members of, of community, and, and, you know, you guys as workers to be the only voice that they have. And that's a pretty important piece of, of your job, I would imagine. Yes. Um, we also, we have to take their picture every time that we are out there. Um, that's not the law. It's just best practice. I'm constantly forgetting to take pictures. Because <laughs> <laughs> I always forget my phone in my car. Um, but we take their picture. If we see any, like, bump or bruise or mark or anything, I'm like, oh, what happened there? I'm like, I'll make them tell me two or three times what happened to see if the story is consistent. Right. Um, because if not, and I mean, we all understand that children get confused. Especially, you know, when you're sitting there and you're like, no, tell me what happened, tell me what happened, tell me what happened. But... <laughs> It's just well, not only that, children that have experienced abuse before, they're scared. Yes, and they don't know exactly who to trust. You know who's on my side? Who's really going to protect me? Am I going to get in trouble for saying something later? Those are yes. all really big fears for for children with with good understanding. Right. Definitely, now that I think people in general are leaning towards more, like, trauma-informed and, like, understanding that, like, the root cause of almost every foster child's behavior is some form of trauma and just kind of figuring out how to, like, unpack that and stuff, I'm hoping that we'll have fewer children who are, like, afraid to just say what happened and things like that. Well, I really hope you're right there. Um, do you have a story about about one particular kid or one particular case that really changed you, that really affected you deeply? Um, yes, I have um, a case, and it's four, uh, four kids, two twins, um, a kid. I think he just turned ten. Yeah, he did. He just turned ten. The twins just turned fourteen, um, and when the Baby just turned three, which to me, I mean, like, if you're under 10 years old, you're a baby. I don't, I'm, I'm from the South. Just, that's just how it is for me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, baby is three and, um, I did their removal. They were sheltered from the bench. Um, what do you mean sheltered from the bench? That means that we went to court. And I told the judge what had been happening, and he said, okay, go pick the kids up, basically. Okay. Um, we had one judge where that was kind of like, he was, he sheltered from the bench a lot. Okay. Wasn't my favorite thing. <laughs> but at the same time, he has the same obligation to make sure that these children are safe that we do. So I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm, I would rather him be sheltering children from the bench than children be getting hurt. So I was never one to complain about that, but some people were not fans. Um, And so he sheltered these children from the bench. I went and I, uh, the baby was in court. And so I was like, give me the baby. Um, You know, I mean, obviously that's, that's paraphrasing. Um, (laughs) 
But I was like, okay, you know, hug him and everything, and then he's going to leave with me. Um, and so I left court uh, in a situation like that when there's, like, high emotion and stuff. You really – you want to get out of there as soon as possible because heightened emotion can lead to erratic behaviors and it can become a safety concern. Absolutely. So you're just – you're getting in and out as fast as you can. So I I was like, if there's anything you want him to have, give it to me. Give me his car seat. And, you know, we're going to go. And they were compliant. Um, and so I left with the baby. I showed up at the office and I was like, hey, I have this baby now. <laughs> um, this is my first removal. So I was like, I don't know what to do. Um, and then while I was like in the office, I was calling the older children, calling their schools, saying like, as of right now, their mom cannot pick them up this afternoon. Do not release them to their mom or I will call the police. Which, that's not fun for anybody, so please don't do that. Um, and then I went and I picked all the kids up from school early. I checked them all out of school. Um, and they were all confused. I mean, they knew me. I had been their case manager by that point for a couple of months, making weekly home visits. Um, so they, they knew me and they knew who I was. And they were like, why are you picking us up? And I was like... I had to tell them basically that like you're in foster care now and like their confusion and their sadness. And like, then I facilitated like a visit with them and their mom and then like their mom was bringing up their clothes and things for me. And then like their anger and, like, hearing their mom saying, like, no, you're going to be okay. Like, just be good. Like, you'll be okay. Everything will be fine. That I think about a lot. And, like, I initially was very dismissive of the mother and was, like, she's just, she's mad. She's angry. And that's fine. And I understand that. But I cannot answer the phone every time she calls me because we have cell phones. So I am very accessible, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Um, and so I, I initially was like very dismissive of her and stuff. But as time went by and I like really observed the bond between her and her children, I understood that like she was just scared. Like, she, yeah, she was angry, but she was lashing out because she was afraid and she was nervous and she wanted her children. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine what that would feel like because I've never been separated from my children like that. So I can't imagine what that would feel like to a parent, you know, to even imagine being separated from my children and not having access to my kids, it's unimaginable to me. She later told me that that was the first time in their entire lives that she had spent a night away from them. Wow. And that way, that's why she was texting me at three and four and five in the morning because she could not sleep. And I was like, I get that. I'm definitely asleep. <laughs> right. You, you have to have your boundaries. You know, right. Boundaries are good. So, but she would send me, I mean, 
she would send me 60 texts in an hour, like one text message a minute. Oh, wow. Like, how are they? Are they okay? And I was like, yes, they're fine. I promise. And she was also, English is not her first language. She was confused. And I mean, when I said, no, now I'm, I'm their legal guardian now, she thought that meant that they went home with me. And I was like, they definitely are not coming home with me. <laughs> as, as sweet as they all are, <laughs> uh, I don't have room. So, <laughs> um, What made this I, case so special for you? It was my first case. Um, when you finish your pre-service class, you're given five cases um, or ten children. So um, it's either or. And so I got my first five cases, and I had been working those for about a month. This is the first case that I went to case transfer, and I got, and it was mine. I didn't get it from somebody else. It's my case. And this is the first case like that for me. Same. And I, I still am working it. I'm still working this case. Um, and they're doing great. The twins and the middle child are with their dad, and... <laughs> They're mad at me because I haven't sent them their Christmas presents yet. Uh-oh. <laughs> and they're like, when are we going to get them? And I'm like, I know you got Christmas presents from your dad. So just hold on. Like, they're in my cubicle. I'll get them out when it stops raining. <laughs> like, I don't want to send you wet Christmas presents. And so they're they're so funny. And they're just... um. I spent so much time with them <clears throat> in between making sure they got to school. I used to um I used to drive an hour away, go pick the middle one up in the at about six forty five in the morning, so I would have left my house at about five thirty um in the morning, which is not fun for me. And I would drive an hour away, pick him up, and then drive him back to about 10 minutes away from my house. Wow. <laughs> and take him to school. <laughs> I was always so irritated because I was like, <laughs> like, yeah. it's so close to my house. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think in, around here, I'm pretty certain they, they tend to keep the kids in the school district of the uh, that they're in, if at all possible. And if, if they have to move to a different home, they usually change school districts. Do you guys not do that? Um, I mean, they do stay in the same school district if possible. This was temporary. It was about a couple weeks, basically. I see. Um, the foster mom who had him, initially, she was like, she was just kind of nervous because he was an older boy. And she has two of her own sons and who are younger. And she was like, well, let me just see how it goes. Let me just see. And then... She got him, and she realized that uh, he's the most polite child on the face of the planet. <laughs> and she was like, oh, okay, he can stay. But so that was for um, kind of the testing out process, and then uh, his overcap needed to be approved, um, and that takes a little bit. And then until we could get him move schools. He went to the next county over. I see. Um, so it wasn't, like, outlandishly far. It just feels very far at five in the morning. <laughs> the elementary schools start so early. The middle schools are no problem. I get up at two o'clock in the morning for my job, and I, I will agree that 
the miles are longer before 5 a.m. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I was taking him and then I would take him to school, go pick his uh, the twins up uh, at about 8 o'clock and then take them to school. The middle schools in uh, where I live, they start at 930 in the morning. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> That's something that actually makes a lot of sense. I've heard some research talking about the importance of moving that start time back in the day if you yes. want to get the best out of kids. And I haven't seen any schools in our area moving towards that, but I hear it's it's got some real positive effects. Have you seen have you seen any real benefit of that in your experience with, with kids in that age range? The only two teenagers I've ever had and they were they were gonna be good kids whether school started at nine thirty or not. Like they were gonna get A's whether or not school is starting that early because they were just, I've never met kids before like them who were just so good. Like they never got up to anything. I was always waiting for them to try it, but they <laughs> never ever did. Well, I have a couple of kids I could send you. <laughs> no, we've already discussed this. I'm going to Miami. The kids are staying here. Mom, Miami. To him. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, these uh, people still in my office talk about them and they're like, how are they? And stuff like that because they were just so genuinely sweet the whole time. And they would come up to the office and they would hang out and like sit on the floor in my cubicle while I worked and stuff like that. Um, that I would say that the idea of like the foster kids sleeping in the social worker's office, that's kind of a myth. But yeah. I have sat up at the office with kids who are asleep before. Um, it's not common, but it absolutely still happens. Um, yeah, because they don't just remove kids at at uh, 2 p.m. Yeah. And I know we've definitely gotten some phone calls in the middle of the night. Yes, they happen. The middle of the night phone calls happen. And then, I mean, especially if you have a teenager, like... You can offer some people all the money in the world, and they still will not take a teenager. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the older kids are, are definitely a harder placement, typically, from what I understand from the workers yes. I know. Abs- absolutely, they are. Absolutely. The fact that we were able to find placement for my twins because they were fraternal as one boy and one girl, the fact that we were able to find placement in the county that I live in together was like insane. Yeah. That's an uh, uncommon thing. I would think. Right. And the, we, <laughs> I'd say that the primary reason that we were able to do that is because of, uh, is because of them and how good they are. Well, that's- it's, it's not on us at all. It's completely them and their, I mean, just excellent behavior. That's great because not every kid who comes into into care comes in with a bucket full of good behavior and <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> but you know, and you touched on this a few minutes ago. But the uh, trauma informed piece, you know, understanding that that a lot of times the behaviors you see are a manifestation of some of the trauma a kid has experienced. Right. Um, is that something you've done some training on? Yes, so we all have to take a trauma-informed care training, um, and we 
Uh, I mean, we're updating that training constantly. Um, I go to a big conference every year. I say every year. I've been to one. I'll go to another this year. <laughs> um, we have a big conference every year. Um, we, if the state is sending around, like the state will send like uh, lectures around and stuff like that. Okay. Um, our, my agency encourages us to go. Um, encourages is a polite way of putting it. They make us go. Um, <laughs> In the army, we called that being voluntold. Yeah, that was, it's basically that. Is they're like, mm, so you don't have to do this, but we are going to make you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so there's that. We, uh, it's 40 hours of training for your first certification. And 20 hours of maintenance every year after that. I see. Um, do you have any other trainings that you have to keep up on? Um, I think we're all about to have to be certified human trafficking case managers. I think they're um, making us do that. A lot of us uh, are angry about that because we don't want to um, do human trafficking cases um, because they're, I mean, emotionally difficult. And uh, also just very labor-intensive is my understanding. Um, it's hard to find safe houses. The uh, human trafficking victims often run away. I see. Um, and they often become recruiters, uh, and that's a big issue. Oh, I bet. How has your job affected you emotionally? Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's a big great. question, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I have uh, had ADHD my whole life, um, and I still will, the rest of it. Um, uh, I would say increased anxiety, um, depression has been a big one. Uh, there are some days where... I can't make myself get out of bed until three in the afternoon. Um, and there are some days where I am sitting in my car in the parking lot and I'm, I, I know that I should go in to the building and start my day and do my job, but I just have to really work myself up and like amp myself up and say like, you can do this. Um, it's, I see where the turnover rate is so high. I see why burnout is such an issue. I I love my job. I take great satisfaction in my job. But there are some days where I, I would rather run my car off a bridge than go to work. Uh, I've had those days. Um, I don't think they're anything you know like what you're you're dealing with i i take care of people with special needs um so some days are more challenging than others but right. do they offer any support for you guys whether it be counseling yes. yeah so the employee assistance program we have the uh the agency that i work for is owned by a healthcare agency Case management has been privatized in the state of Florida since the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, really? Yes. I don't know 100% when. I know 
There was one case that we looked at, and it was the, like, 97. And they were just starting to roll it out in a couple of counties and see how it was going to go. Um, but so I, I don't work for the state. I work under contract um, for a community case care. Community-based care is what they're called. So the CBC I work for is owned by a, a large healthcare company. Or, I mean, I think it's large. Maybe it isn't. Mm. <laughs> there's therapists and there's psychiatrists and there's behavioral health people. Um, we have a, a mat clinic. We have substance abuse programs. It's all one big campus. And so you have unlimited, you can see a therapist that works for the uh, the clinic as much as you want, but um, is that something my- that seems ex- acceptable, or do people look down on you for using those resources? Um, I know I some places they'll that. make you feel bad for yeah taking care of your um, mental health. I I don't see I don't use it. Um, I I have my own therapist that I've been seeing since before I got my job, so I go see her. She's. And I go um, every couple weeks or every every week if I feel like it. Um, and my whole thing is like either you go or I quit or either I go or I quit like because I'll go insane. Oh, it, it's understandable. Me and Jason, we, yeah. we have a guy that we see regularly. Yeah. You know, you um, have to take care of yourself. Yeah. So a lot of people are in therapy. Um, I've had those my whole life, but the job didn't help. Uh, it definitely made it worse. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I would think people don't want to admit that the job is getting to them. Because there's this feeling that if you say, I'm overwhelmed, that you're weak. And you are you just can't handle it. And some people just can't handle being a case manager. So nobody wants to sit there and say, yeah, I have to go see a therapist. Nobody wants to sit there and say, yeah, I'm on Ambien. Or something like that. But... It's happening. Well, and there's such a stigma. Well, there used to be, let me correct myself, there used to be such a stigma around mental health. And it's just become, in the recent, more... um, What's Socially acceptable. Yeah, more acceptable. Right. Um, People didn't talk about it. We'll talk about the kids' mental health all day long. Right. And, And we acknowledge it as a serious issue um, in my office, but people will not. Like, I don't care. Like, if I'm leaving in the middle of the day and my boss says, where are you going? I'm like, therapy. Bye. Like, I gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't bother me, but some people, they're like, no, why would I go see a therapist? And I'm like, because this is some whack. I'm sorry. Am I allowed to swear? If you want, I don't, I don't throw a fit about (laughs) any of it. Okay. I was just going to say, because this is some whack shit. Like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and that's that's part of what what we found is, you know, we've been taking care of kids, whether foster care or uh, family type placement stuff for for decades now, and the things you see will just blow your mind. Yeah, you know the things that oh, you yeah. experience. You know, we we've had kids who witness, you know, family members murdered. We've had kids, well, little turtle. Um, you know, his his drug screen when he first came into care. You know, that that was like when they, they read the what they found in his 
his hair follicle test, um, they did a 9 to 12 month hair follicle test, right? So from the time he was 9 to the time he was 12, I'm sorry, 9 months to 12 months old. Right. Like, she just kept listing drugs. It was like, um, are you done yet? How can you find yeah. that much in a kid that age? And the truth yeah. is, is there's just that much trauma out there. Have you experienced any real trauma in your own life? Um, my parents are divorced. I always tout that as one. Uh, oh, yeah. My parents had a nasty divorce. How old were you when that happened? Um, ten. Oh, that's not a great age for that. No, it's not fun. Um, but I mean, other than that, like, nope, my parents were both very loving. I mean, I definitely had southern parents. I guess <laughs> that could be its own trauma. Um, <laughs> well, for a couple of years of my young life, I lived in the backwoods of Tennessee, so I, I do understand the Southern lifestyle a little bit. Right. Yeah. Um, but both of my parents were in the military. Um, my mom, she was in the military until my senior year of high school, and my dad was until right when I was born. Um, my dad got out of the military in December, and I was born in February. Okay. What branch were they? My mom was in the Air Force and my dad was in the Army. Oh, okay. Well, tell um, them thanks for their service. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they met. Um, I think they met like at a bar on base. <laughs> and then I was born on base. Uh, not very much later. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that happens a lot. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, that's I was actually, my understanding. <laughs> I was on an Army detachment on an Air Force base for a few years, and yeah, I, I can see that happening. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think <laughs> my dad told me, but it was like 25-cent beer night. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, that's nice. That's Cheap booze. Classy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, I mean, not, not specifically, um, my parents had a, a hostile relationship towards one another. Um, they still cannot be in the same room very much. Uh, they managed to pull it together from a high school graduation for a good two days. <laughs> and I was like, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then, I mean, just, I moved around a lot as a child, but that's not necessarily traumatic. It's just not very stable. Yeah, I mean, a lot of kids move around the military, but there is some trauma that exists in that, I guess. Well, um, you lose relationships and new friendships yes. and, and things like that, and that that can definitely hold some trauma for for kids. Yeah, we. I have recently just found um, Karen Purvis and, and some of the things that she talks about how trauma affects kids. And I'm kind of blown away by how much uh, I haven't learned yet from her because she seems to have a whole lot of information out there. I know I saw that she passed away a few years ago, but she has a wealth of information online and on YouTube and all over the place, you know, to, to learn about how that trauma can manifest itself in a kid's life in different ways and different times. And it's right. hard to see it sometimes. I think the big one is everybody is always saying, oh, this kid has ADHD. Oh, this kid has ADHD. This kid is traumatized and does not know how to exist in a structured environment. They don't have ADHD. Like, he's fine. He does not have ADHD. He's just so used to running wild and doing whatever it is he wants to do that he's going to push back because you are making, like, you're providing him a structure. 
that's like that's the one that always gets me. You know, our very first placement, and um, you, you can probably appreciate this because when the uh, the licensing worker brought us our um, our actual physical license when it was all done, she said, "I want to talk to you about a couple kids." And then she started talking about it. Oh, yeah. The second you're done training, we're like, what's up? <laughs> we got some. But, but the, the thing that caught me off guard was when she said, these kids are um, rambunctious. Yeah. And I thought to myself, <laughs> I was trained that, that workers tend to use code words. Why is yes. she saying rambunctious? That's not a code <laughs> word that they would normally use. They would say they would benefit from a structured environment and... Yeah, and the truth was, is these two kids, they were they were rambunctious for sure. <laughs> but three, two weeks, a couple of weeks after they came to our house, the worker came over for, for one of the visits for whatever it was. And she said, I have never seen these kids act this way before. Yeah, and you, you mean? can just get them in a routine. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what it was. She was like, you know, I don't know what magic, you, what black magic you guys are using with these kids. <laughs> but the last time I saw them, they were at their grandfather's house jumping off the kitchen table. I haven't seen any of that, you know? Yeah. But you're right. A lot of it is just some structure, some routine. Because I don't know about Florida. I'm going to assume that you guys have a lot of the same issues we do here. But a lot of the cases we see involve parents who are addicted to something. Yes. And the kids are, I mean. They're uh, just. They're I left mean, they're for their left own devices. Unsupervised. Yeah. Yeah. You end up with feral toddlers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to put it. I mean. I, I stole that, that, that name from a friend of mine um, who that his wife, I think, um, I think she keeps threatening to start a blog and name it the feral toddler talking about their son. <laughs> But I mean, it's in a lot of cases that that's almost an accurate statement. These kids don't yes. have the structure in their life. They don't have people to say, "Hey, look, we get up at this time. We go to bed at this time. Here's when breakfast is. You eat it between these hours. If you don't eat it, lunch will be here in a little bit." Right. And just creating that structure takes away a lot of the symptoms that look like ADD, ADHD, look like a lot of the other labels that right. can be put on a kid when. Sometimes it really is just a kid's brain who doesn't feel safe and secure in its environment. Right. And then they're never going to behave for the caseworker because being up at the office is the least structured environment in the entire world. And as much as you, the caseworker, are like, sit down and be quiet. There's another caseworker walking by who's like, do you want some candy? Do you want some popcorn? (laughs) her problem when when this kid is like bouncing off the walls i had one he was up at the office with me every day for like three weeks we could not find this kid and like a a permanent placement so he was always up at the office with me i had a co-worker who would pick him up and carry him and i was like you put him down because i'm not picking him up he's too heavy (laughs) i'm not doing it he walked his legs worked and she was like, but he just wants to be held. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> he wants- He's fine. He'll sit in my lap and I'll hold him that way. Like, that's fine. But I'm not picking this child up anytime I need to go somewhere. Yeah. And like, they'll, they'll, all of your coworkers will spoil a kid that you have up there with you because it is not their problem. <laughs> exactly. In an average week, how many hours do you think you actually put in? I am not allowed to work more than 40 hours a week. Okay. We do not have overtime. Um, obviously, if there's an emergency, 
you know, overtime is on an approval basis. So I would need to, if I think I'm going to go over, I would need to go to my supervisor's supervisor. So my extra boss. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody needs an extra boss. (laughs) Right. And I have to like basically plead my case and like, this is everything I have to get done this week. Can I go over time? And usually they say yes. But uh, sometimes they're like, no, you can get that done in 40 hours because they haven't been a caseworker in like 20 years and they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and honestly, they probably don't understand what the job is today very clearly because it has changed so much just with technology. Yeah. But, um, No, so, yeah, I I cannot work more than 40 hours a week. And I honestly usually end up working about 36 or 38 because I'm not a morning person. (laughs) Are you guys required to do any on-call? No, not case managers. Supervisors have an on-call phone that they rotate. Um, If an emergency happens, you call the on-call phone or you call 911. Gotcha. Like, you cannot call me the case manager. <laughs> I do not have the authority to remove a child. Only um, only investigators have that. Back when we worked for the state, we could remove children, but we can't do that anymore. Um, I say we, like I ever had that power. I don't have the authority <laughs> to remove a child. Uh, a judge or a case manager has to do it. Or, uh, or a, an investigator has to do it. So, I mean, like, you could call me and say that there's a child, like, walking down the side of the road. I, I, I can't do anything. I understand. All I can do is call in an abuse report. Like, you have to call the police. Like, I can't help you. Yeah, you'd probably rather have a guy with a gun shop to handle that anyways. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then that's something that we are constantly complaining about is how we can't have any, like, protection, anything like that investigators they can have the police go with them we can't do that yeah i know we've um i've talked with a couple workers who've mentioned that even here you know you're and i understand you know without diving off too deep into the politics of it but i understand the challenges of of an agency allowing workers to carry personal protective protection but it's Mm -hmm. also it's, it's a there's a safety concern there i'm certain in a lot of places you go because kids don't come into care because Mom and dad are, you know, what you would call completely safe humans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, For us, if there's a safety concern, like, if I feel unsafe, I'm not going out there. I just won't. And, like, if if you want to fire me over it, you can. But, like, I'm just, I'm not putting myself in a position where I don't feel safe. Thankfully for us, if we feel a parent is a safety concern, we'll just tell the judge that we're not going to go out to their house. I don't do that. Somebody else comes and does it for me. <laughs> somebody, somebody who has more pull. Um, there you go. But our 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 higher ups, our leadership, they're very good about saying like, no, don't go to this person's house. Like they're not stable. They will attack you. If I don't feel safe, I'm just like, if you want to meet with me, you can come up to the office. I will set you an appointment. That's great that they're willing to stand behind you for something like that. Um. Yes. I mean, we have, uh, at our front desk, there is a picture of a guy, and it says, if you see him, call law enforcement, because he has basically put on our Facebook page that he hates us and is going to kill all of us. Well, if it makes you feel any better, 
<laughs> so I, the safety threat is is real. If it makes you feel any better, I'm on at least two different people's list of people um, who they want to kill. So I'm know. sure I'm on some lists because I am, as much as I try and be like very patient and very nice, it doesn't always happen. Well, kindness only works so far. Right. So yeah. I know I'm on some lists. I have my first termination trial coming up on Tuesday. I know. I know I'm on that dude's list. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's a challenge, I'm sure. But hopefully, you know, your agency is able to provide you with enough enough uh, protection, at least inside of your job, that yes. you don't have to worry about having problems there. Yes. Um, we're really good. We're all very safety conscious. Um, and so, I mean, right now it gets dark at like 430 when we're leaving the office at five or six or seven, you can either call and like security from the hospital will come and walk you to your car or you can, um, we'll just find somebody to walk with in the office and say like, Hey, are you about to leave? We, we try and stick to like a buddy system. That's good. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Mm -hmm. another question I had, now that you've had some experience, um, have you ever thought about maybe later on in your life becoming a foster parent if you weren't in a position of uh, of working at, at an agency or, or maybe even adoption? I think I would. I think I would. I would have some reservations. Because, like you said, the case manager, and I know from experience, because I know what my little code words are, (laughs) I don't like to say that children are defiant. I like to say that they're very spirited. Because, like... I've heard that one a time or two. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm just like, this child, she's, she's very independent. She's very spirited. And that means, like, she does not listen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, have but fun. Good luck. Um, our, so, our oldest kids have made it past the twenty-year-old mark, and I will say a lot of those things that make you crazy about your kids when they're young are the things that will become their superpower later in life. My mom says that uh, I was the least per- pleasant like person to be around when I was a teenager, <laughs> and she like didn't ever want to be in the same room as me. But now I'm like pretty cool. <laughs> and she says that about me too that I was always like very independent and like wouldn't listen and like wanted to do what I wanted to do. Yeah, and that's the one we see the most is um spirited children. I think I would I just in knowing myself, I think I would place the stipulation that I would not want to take children with behaviors because I know I'm not very patient. And I don't think it's fair to the child to be in an environment where somebody is not being patient with them. And I wish that some other foster parents would just like would just bite the bullet and say, I won't take a child with behaviors because I've seen foster parents who are just You so have to terse. know your strengths and right. you know, My we're not here to do more damage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're not here to do more damage. The damage has already been done. Right. I've seen yeah, I just I don't ever want to be the person who's like yelling at a kid or anything like that. So I, I'm an easy kids only kind of person. <laughs> if there was anything you could change about your job, what would you change? Um, 
I would like to make more money. <laughs> I think it. we all would. <laughs> That's it. Um, I I make about thirty two thousand dollars a year. An investigator makes forty. Wow, that's um, that's not a whole lot. No, but it's it's certainly more than me. <laughs> um, and um, I just that's all I would like. I would like to have a salary, and I would like to make the same amount of money as an investigator. That's all I want. Yeah, because it sounds like you're about on par with um, with the pay scale around here. I believe that their pay scale is somewhere around thirty. And that's yeah, something 30, that, 32. that something that we had looked into, or I had looked into a few years back, and I realized that, you know, in order to do that job, it was going to cost me almost as much to get the degree as I would make in a year's time, and then my kids would be hungry on a regular basis. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know about the state of Florida. I know Missouri, that's one of the things that, that's always kind of bothered me, because as far as foster parent reimbursements go, we are the either lowest or second lowest paid state in the nation. And it, right. t- it's, it says a lot about where they're putting their priorities when you can see where their money goes. I think in Florida, standard board rate for a toddler is about $200 a month. That, that's pretty well on par with us, too. Um, so that, I mean, that's always but one I, thing I that, that a lot of people say is, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, well, you do it for the money. I'm sorry, there's, there's no money to be had, honey. Yeah. yeah, there's no money to be had here. Yeah, it's pretty easy to a- actually outspend any monthly stipend that they give you because, well, kids want to eat every day. Yeah, and that's not unreasonable of them. Right. <laughs> I mean, I-, I like to eat every day, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, I like to eat more than <laughs> one time a day, even. <laughs> Two or three, usually. Yeah, I, li- I like to <laughs> snack, and I want my soda and a coffee here or there. Right. And I prefer so. <laughs> not to eat hot dogs for every meal. So, yeah, it's, it gets expensive. And it seems to me and a lot of people that I've talked to from different areas that, that the state doesn't seem to want to put a lot of money into the foster care system. And the, right. I think the troubling part of that is that that the less money they spend now with these kids, the the rates of former foster youth who show up in prison who right. show up yep. in other ways, you know, being wards of the state. Cost who have money. their own children removed down the line as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, and it just keeps going and going. Right. Um. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um. yeah, I know that we, the state of Florida, there is a program, like, uh, relative caregivers. They get money as well, but that's done through child support. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, we are going to try and put a child with relatives or a fictive kin, um, any, any chance we get. And I, but there's no reason not to invest in the foster care system. It's just, it's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, this is our future. We're, you know, we're trying to build people up, not break them down more. And that, that costs something. Right. I don't, it's the same as like people, some lawmakers, they don't want to invest in education or like head starts or things like that. And it's, if you build a good foundation for these kids, like, it just takes time. It's like planting a tree. Absolutely. You, uh, you don't get a whole lot out of that acorn the first year, but. 
over time you'll you you can grow quite a quite the oak tree. Right, exactly. So that that's that's just one of the things that we've struggled with around here. It's I think it's a struggle everywhere. It's certainly uh not the easiest here for us. Um Yeah, the the perception too that foster parents are in it for the money. Um it's the same thing. There there's it's not a lot of money. Like there's no money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. That that that's just it. part of the problem that we're going to have to somewhere as a community eventually figure out how to fix. Um, well, we've tied you up for a while, but one of the questions I always like to ask guests before I let them go is, what wisdom can you give to the listeners that only Libby can provide for us from your experience? Ooh, um, I would say. That when you are working with children in foster care, in any capacity, whether you're their teacher or their caregiver or their case manager or something like this, it's so easy to write their parents off as just abhorrent people because their child is in foster care, so they must be. I think it's important to remember for the sake of the children and the parents that these people, the overwhelming majority of them, love their children very much. And if you're like a child in foster care, it doesn't mean that your parents didn't love you or didn't want to take care of you because they probably really did. But sometimes you can do your best and your best is just not good enough. And that's just part of life, but it doesn't mean that you didn't try. Well, I've heard that line from, uh, from other social workers in the past. Um, sometimes your best isn't good enough, but you know, and that, that's one of the it, pieces that's hard to, hard to reconcile, I think for a lot of people. And it's true for us just as well as it is true for them. I have tried my best to, give all of these children back to their parents. But my best is not always good enough. And it's it's certainly a two-way street, so I can try my best all day long. But if I can't get them to try theirs, you know, it, it's just not good enough. Yep. And, and thank God there's people out there like you who are looking out for the best interests of the kids because... You know, we know even though as a foster parent, it doesn't always feel that way, but the best thing for these kids is to be back in the home with their biological mom and dad who actually care for them and take care of them. And that is by, in a way, the best possible solution. But we have to deal with the fact that that's not always the solution that we get to right. end up with. No, it, uh, it isn't. And it's, I would want people to understand too that like it, the things that hurt you as a parent or a child in the dependency system, they hurt us too. Like we hurt along with you. I think that's probably a great place to leave it because that's a, that's I think that one of the most important parts for us to realize. That we're all just working together trying to get these kids to a place where they can 
they can grow up and become the person that they they were meant to be. Right. Well, thank you so much for all your time tonight. You know, I thank you guys. You, you're doing great work there in Florida, and we really appreciate you. Even though we're not in Florida, we are all on a team together. And thank you for for taking two hours of your time. I do really appreciate that because I know I know how valuable time can be. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks to everyone for listening all the way through. If you're trying to find us on a specific podcasting platform, just search for Jason and Amanda Palmer or Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or anywhere where you find your podcast. You can also download it so that you can listen wherever you're at, even when you aren't online. You can find us online at jasonmpalmer.com, where you can read our blog and listen to all of our previous podcasts. If you have a story that you'd like to tell on the show, please send me an email at jasonmpalmer at yahoo.com, and be sure to put podcasts in the subject line. Or send me a message through our Facebook page at Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. We'll see you next time.